it's always about offering value to customers, to, you know, whoever you meet at a networking event, even in podcast interviews, it's all about just share what you have. Don't try to hold it down. Don't try to wait until people pay or all that limiting behavior. I think it's an abundance mindset. Ultimately, we all have a lot to share. And I'm, I've always been sure that by sharing as much as you can, some degree of reward will come back to you. Welcome back to the Product Market Fit Podcast, a show for early stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Roland Sieblink, founder and CEO of Midstage Institute. Previously, Roland played an instrumental role in growing three unicorns, two in Europe and one in the Bay Area, and he started Midstage to help founders navigate the transition from startup to scale-up. This interview is jam-packed with practical advice around the various stages that startups go through, what to do after achieving product market fit, and the skills that founders need to successfully transition as leaders across stages. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and operators to help you on your startup journey. Help others like you discover the pod by leaving a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or by sharing this episode on social media. And as always, I love to hear from you, so email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co. That's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now here's Roland Sieblink, founder and CEO of Midstage Institute. Hello, Roland. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. Absolutely. So why don't you start us off with a quick bio and tell us about Midstage Institute, what you guys do. Absolutely. So I've been very lucky in my career to have been involved in three subsequent unicorn stories. First in the 90s in a new telecom landscape, launching broadband internet in Belgium, and then in the 2000s, post.com bust, trying to help clean up another internet company. And then in the 2010s here in Silicon Valley with Rocket Fuel. And so every time it was a story of joining a company of maybe some employees and helping that grow to about a thousand in three years time. So that's given me a unique perspective on what that growth journey actually looks like, what it feels like to become a unicorn so fast. And now I've started to share that experience with founders that are currently in that situation, because the one thing that you can say for almost sure for every founder that's uh, running a soon-to-be unicorn is they've never done it before, right? And so uh, I've seen the movie a few times. I can predict what could happen or what caveats you have to watch out for. That's exactly what we do with Midstage Institute. So we facilitate founding teams. We coach founders. We offer guidance, tools, software sometimes for basically keeping everything on track and helping them to get through that tricky mid-stage all the way from initial product market fit, as I'm sure we'll talk about more towards that vision of product market dominance. Very rare to have been through that three times. So definitely you have unique perspective there. Why don't we just paint the landscape of stages for a startup tech company, just so we're using common nomenclature, if you can walk us through those stages and how you define them. 
Yeah, so without going into too much detail, I think the large stages that we see are the early stage startup, which is essentially looking for that product market fit bonanza, let's call it, right? Or the holy grail, as they sometimes call it. This is a stage that takes often much longer than founders expect it to take, right? So I think four or five years is not actually that exceptional, even though people think it might take six months to nine months or something like that. So uh, this is a stage where you have to, as a founder, be very uh, on top of things. You have to quite controlling, let's say, in uh, you know making sure the experience is right, making sure you target the right customer customers, making sure that you can iterate very quickly on the feedback you get. And so the founders that survive and get to that product market fit are often those that have built a strong team of strong assistants around them, let's say, people who just jump at the uh, opportunity to help that founder and who believe in the same vision that that founder shares. Now, once you have reached product market fit, and let's say the revenues start flowing and you start seeing lots of referrals coming in, you see more and more demand that sometimes you cannot even properly serve, right? Then actually your stage has to start changing, right? So you have to start changing from that early stage startup mentality to more of a mid-stage startup mentality. And some levers that I would mention there are like, you have to get much better at delegating. Involve your whole team. You typically start seeing multiple levels of employees in the organization. So from managers, maybe even leaders to managers, and then frontline people. How do you get those people involved? How do you not treat them like an assistant anymore, but more like somebody who actually owns a whole area? It also means you cannot be in every room anymore. So suddenly culture and guidelines become a lot more important because guess what? You cannot take every decision yourself when it needs to be taken. So how do you ensure that so many people in your organization take the decision that you would have taken, right? Strategy becomes more important because you're no longer searching for a hundred different ways of making a little bit of revenue. You need to now start moving from exploring to exploiting that opportunity that you found. So that means having the ability to say no a lot more times than you say yes. The question is no longer, can we do this? The question is, should we do this, right? Which is a fundamental difference in the way you start thinking. And of course, especially in these times, it also requires a lot more insight in how you manage your runway, how you stretch your runway, how do you optimize your market results with when you think the funding windows will be open again, and basically become an expert at playing investors out against each other. Fantastic. And I'm sure we're going to come back to some of those unique insights that you shared around exploring versus exploiting. Specifically, I want to come back to that. But just again, to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, is there any difference or nuance between what you're calling mid-stage versus what's often referred to as growth stage for startups? I think everyone has a little bit uh, their own definitions. There's a growth component, which is more the growth hacking, which happens even in early stage. I think you're specialized in that a lot more than I am, right? And so you could say that's already part of a growth stage. For me, the real barriers or let's say the boundaries are, do you have product market fits to start? And at the end, are you dominating that initial product market fit? niche. So have you turned your product market fit into product market dominance? This whole exploring uh, points, a lot of growth, hacking lots of different uh, verticals, different target groups, and seeing what sticks basically, right? After you've reached that product market dominance, so after the mid-stage, you essentially own a particular market, and you're probably then starting to grow the company by building a stack of additional products, 
you know, you've probably already spread this across several geographies, but you're maybe bolting on acquisitions, basically turning that into a multi-product company. So let's rewind to product market fit. A lot of different definitions out there, a lot of different definitions that guests have shared on the show. So I'd love your definition of what is product market fit and how do you know if you have it? Yeah, absolutely. So I always have these like three overlapping circles in mind and it starts with problem solution fit, which I really see as like on the problem side, a very core understanding of what is the issue that my target customer is dealing with and what is such a painful problem that some of them at least would be ready to pay to resolve it, right? And very often you can recognize this by it's a problem that they've already hacked some solution for by themselves or they're they're trying to fix it one way or the other, even if there's no particular good solution for it yet. The solution side is really more the technological advantage, very often driven by some new technology that just came to market that wasn't possible before. And we work with a lot of technical co-founders and founders, and very often this was the impetus for them starting their startup in the first place. They wanted to work with that new cool technology. Today, it would be generative AI. You know, a few years ago, it would have been Internet of Things or in between maybe everything to do with crypto, right? So that's often a technology that they love to work with where they see a lot of potential. But for technical founders in particular, it is also often a solution looking for a problem. So that matching of an actual customer problem with a technological unique advantage is, I think, the part that takes often the longest, getting closer with customers, understanding what their true problems are, maybe embracing that the world is different from what you actually thought it was, right? And it's only then that I think you can start working towards monetizing, which would be the third circle in my model. You have a problem and a solution fit. Now, within that problem solution fit, who are the people that are ready to fund you for this, to pay for this, right? And that's almost always just a subset of whoever has this problem. It may be people that value their time. It may be uh, particular verticals. It may be particular kinds of companies. That is actually the last component of product market fit, identifying who is going to be willing to spend money on resolving this problem. And that's when you can start sizing your market and actually start targeting those particular target customers, right? Yeah, and sometimes the person willing to pay for it isn't actually the consumer or user of the product. So you can think of sometimes more complex purchases or uh, ecosystems that exist where another party, maybe an insurer, maybe uh, an employer or somebody else might pay for it, even though it's the end user is who you thought it was, but the customer is not who you thought it was. But I love that framework and especially the focus on starting with the problem and does the solution solve that problem as opposed to starting with the product, which unfortunately, sometimes we get a little too enamored with our own products and they may be cool and the tech may be exciting, but nobody cares. They care. Customers care whether you solve their problems, right? That's absolutely right. That's been my experience too. But I will also say, Moshe, I still think it's a better approach to start with a solution and then find the problem, even though in theory, that's completely wrong. And the reason I say that is that I see some founders, particularly people with, let's say, a business school background that come in with a very good definition of a problem, but they don't have the technical news to come up with a specific solution that is also defensible, right? And that, I think, is the key part on the solution side. Is this a new technology or algorithm or some specific secret sauce you've developed that you can actually you know, offer a unique advantage to the market with? It's not just, I understand this problem and 
I'm going to solve it because I am great. You know, that would be a consultant's mindset, let's say, right? And that is fine, but it's not scalable and it's not investable over time. Certainly. Yeah. So let's talk about the mid-stage where you focus currently, where your practice helps startups at that stage. What are some of the first steps that you're typically working through with a founder or with a team as you're coming in? They've just recently achieved product market fit. Maybe they've raised a series A or uh, series B. What are some of the first things that you're looking for and looking to address in that? Yeah, absolutely. So almost cynically, the very first step is very often saying no or questioning whether they have truly achieved uh, product market fit. And the reason I say that is too many startups suffer from a condition that I call premature scaling, where just because they cannot stand being a small startup anymore, and they basically want to start showing that they are growing. And so they start hiring folks, they start, you know, building out offices, doing all the things that a larger or a growing company would do, taking themselves seriously, let's say. But underneath, very often, they still don't have product market fit. And this is actually very dangerous because it becomes essentially a distraction to be building that company and get all these people that each bring their own problems and their own ideas. And you actually start forgetting the fact that you don't have product market fit. Often there's this desire that if we just bring in some salespeople and some marketing folks, then they'll figure it out, right? But in my experience, it only makes it much harder to actually reach that uh, product market fit because you essentially give up what is your unique competitive advantage, which is your very fast agility as an early stage startup. The fact that founders can just sit there and say, okay, if that didn't work, we do this and let's try it from tomorrow. That is the unique ability that a, a small startup has. And you're giving that up too early if you do premature scaling. That's why we are often very adamant about, let's see the numbers, let's see where you are at. Do you truly have a product that is successful in the market and that we can help scale? Or would you be would we actually be making the problem worse if we came in with all our scaling advice? The second thing, once they have that, I would say then very often we start from what I would call execution rhythms and execution discipline. So how good are they at actually setting themselves goals and especially sticking to these goals for longer than just a week or so? So many founders having become successful by always jumping onto the next thing, letting their team jump really quickly, have not learned or have forgotten what it's like to set a goal for a slightly longer term, let's say a month or a quarter, and to let people run with that. But this is an essential skill that you need to learn as a founder in order to scale your company through people, right? So they're so used to like, they may have a CMO or a VP of marketing, whatever title they gave them, but the way they treat them is like a glorified assistant. Oh, today I need to see an email come out. Tomorrow, can you update the logo on the website, you know? Whereas the real thing you can learn at that stage is, okay, if this person's responsible for marketing, no matter what their title, it's their job to figure out if the logo comes first or the email comes first. All I should care about is, do they bring in the leads, right? As just an example, and the same would go for engineering, for finance, and for all of the other functional profiles. How do you get to a point where you can delegate the full area rather than just individual assignments and tasks? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Let's attack those one at a time. So for the first part, you mentioned premature scaling. They're coming to you and they're not ready yet. What are some signals or patterns that you see often that 
signal to you that they fall into this bucket? I would say too few customers. So a lot of revenue dependence on just one or two customers that really love them and where they essentially do everything that customer asks for. So where often it's not about the, the technical products per se, but it's essentially become a glorified consulting company. And very often they don't realize they're actually doing consulting at much cheaper rates than the market would expect, which is why the customer loves them so much, but it's not scalable. And so that would be one uh, major part. The other one would be if there's uh, problems with renewals and upselling. So if they do have a customer base, but almost everyone churns after a year or their net revenue retention is clearly uh, below 100%, then I think they probably have product market fit from a value proposition point of view, like attracting customers, but they don't have it in serving the customers. So then we typically need to start working on making the product more attractive, uh, fulfilling more of its promises, maybe some uh, customer success component. Uh, Anything post-sales is probably too weak in that case. And I would say the third component would be if, um, maybe a little bit related to the first, but if we see too much value being created, by people in the field rather than by the technology itself, right? So if it's really more of a services business than a software business, then I think that can work for a while, but you do have to then scale towards, okay, how can the software fulfill more of this? Otherwise, it's, uh, again, not an investable proposition. Absolutely. Common trap for SaaS companies, especially early on, to essentially become custom development shops because they want to make their customers happy. And sometimes you need to do that because you need to learn about the customer's process, all of that stuff. But if you keep doing that, then you're a custom development shop. You're not a SaaS platform that's scalable, right? Yeah. Have you heard the term flintstoning it? Yeah. (laughs) That's what I see very often. And that's a viable strategy in the beginning just to figure out what to build. But of course, you cannot stay in the stone age, right? The person inside the machine, right? Exactly. Let's go back to the second part of what you were suggesting with regards to execution rhythms and discipline. How much of that is founder coaching, where the CEO and or founding team needs to mature from what you call explorers versus exploiters? Mm-hmm. How much of that is bringing on you know, seasoned executives that perhaps the team that got you to product market fit often isn't the team that's going to get you to scale and market dominance. Mm -hmm. So starting with the second, I don't actually believe that bringing on seasoned executives at that stage is the best approach. And the reason why I think that is that I've seen too many teams fail by hiring somebody, especially from a large company, and believing that they will make everything go right. But what that person is typically missing is that mindset of uh, doing a lot with very few resources Uh, They also don't have the automatic approval of the whole company like the founder has, that almost godlike status that a founder typically has, right? So I think, you know, of course, bringing in new blood, new talent at some point in time is good, but I wouldn't immediately go for the top position or somebody basically running the company at that stage. I think that's way too early. My preferred model is very much keep the founder in charge, but have this founder learn new skills, new abilities, and also let go of what they did before so that they can grow. And the reason I say that is that I think it's ultimately also a very simple mindset of just some mechanics around how do you bring discipline into execution. One of the companies I work with, actually several of those, the pattern we come in is, you know, everyone goes through the motions of some certain planning sessions and there may be a document coming out, but 
in the end, next week, they know they're all going to throw it away because the founder will want something different, right? So that is the kind of thing that we have to fight against a little bit. And part of that is, to your point, founder coaching. Typically, very little, actually. Like, all we need to say to the founder is, can you try and sit back in our session and first see what the rest of the team comes up with and try to always be the one that speaks last? And in the beginning, very, very difficult for these founders, yeah. right? But if it's a day-long session, typically the first hour, I'll see them itching and everything, right? And then I start seeing them relax a little bit more. And typically by the time lunch comes by, they will say, you know what? I'm actually amazed at the ideas that the team comes up with because I always thought I had to bring in all this thinking and, and telling everyone what to do. But actually, most of my team comes up with the same or even better ideas than I would have had. The second thing they say, Moshe, is, and I thought this one person held in really high regard has not been contributing at all, whereas that other person I really didn't like, I've been absolutely astonished at the quality of their ideas. But what do you think is happening there? Yeah, oftentimes there's a pattern that emerges and it gets solidified, right? Like the etchings of water through rock, the more often it happens and it's that's just the status quo. Oftentimes people that have great ideas are you know, maybe because they're introverts or whatever, for whatever mm -hmm. reason, they're not speaking up and others are speaking up louder or getting the credit. So yeah, giving people opportunity in different formats, synchronous, asynchronous gives everybody an opportunity to really bring their best, I think. Absolutely. And the other thing that has often happened in, as you say, the habits that have formed over the years is that some people are just really good at always agreeing with the founder. And so then the founder starts holding them in high regard because they're like, oh, wow, that person thinks amazingly. But if the founder sits back and then that person suddenly has nothing to contribute. But, and that's what we'd like to tease out in those sessions. That to your point, sometimes you need to give introverts some space. Sometimes you, you use all the facilitation techniques like uh, post-it notes and all that stuff to make sure ideas come out before you start discussing them. And it then really helps to bring a much more diverse plethora of ideas to the table uh, that the founder will typically be quite happy with and it will be better than if they had just come up with everything themselves. But then the discipline afterwards, of course, is, okay, now can we stick to the plan? We often like to hold the founder themselves responsible for if we say there are five OKRs for this quarter or five rocks or however they want to call them. We like to check in with the founder week by week, like how many of them are green. And that's your responsibility as a founder or a CEO. It's not to execute any of them. It's just to make sure that they are in the green and to hold people accountable to that. On that note, do you believe in company-wide OKRs exclusively at this stage when you're still small? Or do you think that every individual should also have their own set of OKRs or at least every department head? Yeah, definitely the first. At this stage, we want to always start top-down with company OKRs only. My ideal model, which I've never been able to implement, by the way, but still it's my ideal, is just one company OKR to start with the first quarter. The one North Star thing that everyone focuses on, just to start building confidence of we can actually achieve something across the company and it's the one thing we all influence. Now, in reality, we don't achieve that because, you know, there are typically going to be um, some interconnected aspects of some product development needs to take place, some sales and marketing initiative, something on the post-sales side, and very often something also on the people slash finance side. But still, 
I like to position those as cross-functional challenges and strategic rocks for the company rather than just like a concept like, I don't know, swim lanes or functional areas, because I think the silofication of people only thinking within their silos can be very damaging for a company. The value is being created in between the silos, not within silos. Yeah. What founders typically succeed at maturing from an early stage to a mid-stage CEO? Are there specific characteristics or, or traits that you see founders that do this successfully have typically? Yes, I would say so. One thing we really look for is a degree of coachability. And that's maybe expressed too much in our terms as coaches, but what it really dry or what really drives that coachability is i think is a is a desire for self improvement right so very often you can get that indicator by just asking them what's the last business book you've read when was it right and the folks that say okay i'm reading this one right now and last week i read that one and then the week before i read that one those are very often people that have that innate desire for self improvement whereas if a ceo says oh i don't read any business books i've got all i need then that's often a, a bit of a red flag for us and there are certain founder profiles that i'm sure we've all met them that are a little bit thinking they are god's gift to the world right I'm not even religious, but let's uh, just stick with that language at this point in time. And when they think, you know, this, I'm always right and the rest of the world is stupid, that's a much harder slog to go through. And some of these people really don't want any coaching. They will very often immediately direct the coaching towards, no, 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 it's all the other people on the team that need coaching and facilitation. But in practice, that doesn't always work that well. Sure. And unfortunately, we've all come across those type of founders. But I bet that there is also the founders that are well-intentioned, they want to empower the team, but they are innately attracted to kind of like the shiny object. They are much more of the, going back to your kind of framework of exploring versus exploiting, they are explorers. They want to scratch every itch. They want to check out the new technologies. Whereas once you have product market fit and you're moving into this new stage, it's not about, you know, discovering all the other things that could be out there. It's about doubling down and tripling down on the thing that's working and scaling that up. And some CEOs do great at making that transition and some don't. And they're to the detriment of the company continue to operate as they did prior to product market fit and pulling the team apart in different kind of skunk works projects and exploring this and exploring that and changing direction. So I, I see that happening as well. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I would say it's not just the coachability that we look at, but also the executing ability. And then a third a very big component is what outcome do they envision? And that outcome is, I think, an extremely important part, uh, because if their vision for five years, seven years down the road is I want to be a unicorn or I want to have exited, I want to be a billionaire, you know, that is a very different outcome that they have in mind than somebody who says, I just want to be known as like a technical genius. So you're right that many of the founders that we work with have more of that visionary slash technical part. But I would also say very often, this is one of two co-founders that has that, whereas the other is then much more focused on execution ability, building a business rather than just tech exploration. And you often need both. So it, it can be a danger also if somebody's purely focused on execution of what they have and they're not actually looking at 
things coming down the horizon, new technological developments. I work with one customer, for example, that had really optimized their whole business. And there's a lot of uh, service components around writing text for customers and stuff like that. You can only imagine what that feels like now that generative AI is suddenly coming down the pike and it's basically doing for free what part of their service components were doing. So in that case, they need to be able to jump really fast that, okay, what is actually coming down the pike? How can we respond to that and maybe even use it to our advantage? I want to go on a little bit of a tangent since you brought up the co-founder dynamic. Any advice for founders in terms of finding a co-founder and evaluating uh, co-founder fit? And I guess it's probably similar rules or advice as it comes to making some of those critical early hires as well. But any advice or, or tips that you have to share on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I do believe that having a co-founder or two co-founders is a really important success factor in a startup. So while I wouldn't exclude single founder teams in absolutely, I would say it's a much higher uphill battle than if you have some co-founders. I will say the co-founder teams that I found successful are very often based on working together for years, often based on friendships, often based on having been involved with each other for many years. And that's often a more important component than what skill set do they bring, how much experience do they have, because very often people can actually develop these skill sets based on the responsibility that they are given within a company. I would also say within that co-founder team, while generally there is a an agreement that important decisions are taken together, somebody needs to be able to make the call. Otherwise, it's a recipe for paralysis. And so you do need to agree on who is ultimately the CEO, not just as a, a great title to have, but also as a great burden to bear. And one of the companies I worked with for a long time, I they had three co-founders and I asked them, so how did you decide who would become the CEO? And the two non-CEOs both said, because we were faster at saying, not it. <laughs> That doesn't always work that way, obviously, but I do think having that dynamic is very important. And then the third thing I would say, and this is more for when you have co-founders and the inevitable tensions come up, it's a little bit like in a long-term relationship or a marriage, never threaten the relationship per se. Try to always keep the structure of the relationship there. And yes, you can disagree for however much you want and you can call each other a-holes and all that stuff, but do not threaten like I'll leave you. Because once you start doing that, then basically everything starts breaking down. So going back to that journey of scaling up, you talked about kind of product market fit to market dominance. How do you know that it's time to go to our second market or our second product. Oftentimes people do it too early. We talked about like the distractions and shiny objects and spreading yourself too thin. So I like your focus on market dominance. How do you know that we're ready? I think it's really a question of how far are you in your core markets, right? So I think many times people think, oh, we see this amazing growth in our core markets. And so it's time to launch something on the side or... I'm sure you deal with this a lot as well, when people with more technical exposure than, let's say, sales and marketing exposure feel, oh, why is this also hard? This just should sell itself. We should have a better product out there, right? And so they never learn that 
building a growth and sales machine is a job in its own right. And it's maybe even harder than building a product. And so they mistakenly say, this is too hard. The product is not right. Let's just explore something else. So that's a long-winded answer to say, I think your focus should really be on dominating that initial market as much as possible. And I would say it's only once you have solid traction in the mass market, not just the early market, and you are on clear track to become the market leader there, that you need to be ready with additional products, basically to launch that additional S-curve on top of your stack. I would agree with you, Moshe. Most founders I work with are far too early in trying to launch secondary products. And what they don't realize is they give up a lot of that agility and fast-moving ability that makes them the most competitive because now suddenly you have to take in mind three product lineups and everyone's got different priorities and you're spreading the peanut butter too thin, right? So I think the ones that have been very successful is to stick with their core business for a long while and not to build too many distractions from the outset. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there are those that wait too long and then you know they wait till they start missing goals, yeah. missing growth targets to start thinking about their second product line. I see that less common. Right. But mm -hmm. obviously, that's something else that you need to worry about. When we talked earlier, you kind of related this to thinking about your TAM, SAM, and SOM. Yeah. Everybody's familiar with that because they put it on their pitch deck and then they yes. forget about it after exactly. that. <laughs> uh, how do you recommend that founders keep that in mind as they're scaling up? Yeah, I, I actually think of this as this should be almost the underlying vision of what you're trying to achieve as a company. And, you know, coming back to what you just said about people miss their growth targets and that's where they think they need to launch or they should have launched a second product. You're right. And in reality, very often they may set themselves a goal. They may not reach it and then automatically assume that it's because, you know, the product is not good enough, it's not going to grow anymore. So let's launch something new because it's the innovator's mindset, right? This is where Tam Samsung comes into play very quick because they will say, we need a new product in order to grow our sales. And then I will say, in your core market, what's your market share? They often have no idea. And then when you start calculating against not even the Tam, not even the Sam, but just against the SOM, you know, they're invariably far below even 1% of what they had calculated as their song. So then it's a question, is that really a product issue or is it a question of not having built your growth machine, not having tried several channels, not having actually even found that initial channel market fit that you need in order to grow that product? And if you cannot do that, then a second product is not going to help. For early stage founders that are looking, they're, they're still pre-product market fit. However, they want to start sowing the seeds for success long-term now. Some of the tactical things that we talked about, for example, OKRs, likely overkill for early-stage startups. Usually, you want to have you know one or two-week sprint goals, and that's about it. <laughs> you got to just keep on that treadmill, keep uh, going at it to build a product, talk to customers, find product market fit at that stage. But are there things that they could start, whether they're tactical or cultural, that they can start pre-product market fit that will set them up for success later on? Yes, I would say so. I would say in an early stage startup, it's truly about following that build, measure, learn cycle, right? From the, the Lean Startup book that's very famous. But there's nothing preventing you from uh, delegating that cycle to some smart people on your team and say, okay, you're in charge of this build, measure, learn cycle. And I want to see more experiments and I want to see them 
move more quickly. So I think uh, delegating tech talks is almost always the answer in questions like this, right? So how can we actually learn faster? How can we get that cycle to move faster? How can we learn faster so that hopefully we get to product market fit uh, sooner? That's where I would focus. I would also focus on staying very frugal. And so when people have new ideas and, and, and new uh, approaches, I would say, well, let's primarily focus on staying agile. So how can we make decisions really fast and not build complexity too early? But there's also no reason why you're not already starting to look at potential talent profiles, wooing people that might join the company later at some point in time. Plus, of course, there's always the relationship building with potential investors, with, you know, building building trajectory, the data points that you send to all the investors you have met. Making a big differentiation between just keeping the channel open and not actually doing a fundraise too often. So that's one of the tricks that people, I think, only learn after having been in this job for a while. You should almost never be raising, but you should almost always be having the channel open and talking to folks you know, wooing them, keeping them impressed. But the raising should be actually at a very short notice where it's basically, are you in or are you out? Yeah. You should never be raising. We should always be raising, right? Exactly. Raising glasses rather than raising rounds, maybe, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> In terms of networking and keeping oh, yeah. folks in the loop and having those conversations so that when you do open around. You you have the relationships. You have the context. They have the trust because you've kept them in the loop. So definitely love those recommendations about flexing those muscles and training yourself on those skills, even if they're not required at the early stage. Because a you'll be better at it when you need it, and b it does help and it does pay dividends, even if you're doing it a little early. Anything else as relates to the mid-stage, any other device that you want to share, anything that we didn't cover before we move on to our exciting lightning round? <laughs> well, we have a lot of resources because, of course, in the mid-stage, you're still going to be a generalist, right? So you have to focus on better people management, better strategy, better execution, better management of your runway. It's not yet the time where you can just have one person focus on only one thing of these. So typically the way we run our workshops is we will focus on uh, each of these areas in the same workshop so that there's always some extra upskilling going on with the team. And then over time, we also start looking at in the team, who are the people that are maybe like close to a burnout or maybe they've run their course and they've done a great job going between, I don't know, from 1 million to 5 million or something like that. But are they also still the person that's going to bring you from 5 million to 50 million? Or maybe it's time to start bringing in some new blood to your previous point. Doesn't mean you have to fire the other one, but usually they're burned out to some degree that they would actually prefer not to be part of the executive team anymore and to just have more of a steady job underneath a new executive that might come in at that stage. we like to close out with a lightning round. I'll ask you some questions. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Sound okay, good? yeah. What's the last uh, management or leadership book that you've read? Oh, now I have to think. I am currently reading Get Everything Done by Mark Forster, which is uh, about time management. And I like to reread those things just to re-inspire myself again about being even more efficient. Fantastic. What's a productivity or efficiency learning or takeaway that you've uh, gone so far? The more I grow older, the more I realize like, Working longer does not actually help. So just getting in an extra half hour or hour of sleep at night is the biggest lever on productivity I've ever found. 
Perfect. I thought it was just me and I'm getting old, but yes, <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> Fantastic. What's a piece of terrible advice that you've received in your career? Not standing out from the crowd. I think some of us come from cultures where, you know, in Japanese, they would say it's like the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. I had a similar advice once when I was in the Netherlands where I grew up. And I think it's actually opposite. You have to find some way in which you are special and unique. And that doesn't mean you have to brag about it or in any way be, you know, too proud about it. But I do think understanding that every one of us has a unique value to offer and trying to figure out what that is, is the most important advice. So opposite to what I heard when I was a kid. Fantastic. Definitely a cultural thing as well. I think it's, uh, it changes from one to the other. Who's a mentor of yours that's had a significant impact on your life or your career? Uh, I would say my first American managers when I was working in Belgium. So one was called Dave, the other one was called Chuck. And they both really, from very different styles, I would have to say, really guided me towards understanding more management potential, encouraged me to do an MBA, you know, became uh, very uh, influential also in learning to look at the organization from a CEO perspective. And that really has stayed with me for many years. What's one thing that you'd like to change about the startup world? The focus on raising funding. I think it's become so much the, the recipe for, oh, as a successful startup founder, you have to raise funds from VCs. And that's basically the, the guideline for success. I think especially since the investments required to build a successful company have come down so much with infrastructure as a service with lots of the growth investments that are not that important anymore. I think people should seriously consider to bootstrap longer, to be profitable earlier on, and to basically build a dominant niche where they can actually get much more return for themselves as well as a bigger impact in the world than they would get if they followed the VC path right away. But that's why I'm not an investor. You know, it's a theme that I've heard from many folks, and I kind of agree with it. Most Startup lore is focused on, you know, the next raise, the next valuation. And that's great for VCs. That's not always great for founders. I think that's maybe honing in on what we really would like to change, that understanding what is good for VCs is not necessarily good for founders or not always. And you're right, all the lore is about that, but it takes a while until you start realizing that a lot of that is essentially VC marketing. If you could have coffee with any historical figure that are alive, who would you choose? Mahatma Gandhi. Probably because Fantastic. he wouldn't drink coffee to start with. What would you talk about? I would think I would talk about his unassuming style of leadership and how he could move millions and millions of the masses in a direction against an oppressive enemy without any formal sort of power. Fantastic. Last one here. What's a core value or principle that you live by or try to live by? Offer value first. I think... That is really driving a lot of what I do. It's always about offering value to customers, to you know whoever you meet at a networking event, even in podcast interviews. It's all about just share what you have. Don't try to hold it down. Don't try to wait until people pay or all that limiting behavior. I think it's an abundance mindset. Ultimately, we all have a lot to share. And I'm, I've always been sure that by sharing as much as you can, some degree of reward will come back to you. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your insights and your experiences and your advice. Close us out, if you will, with anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover, as well as how can people reach you if they want to continue the conversation 
and also the link that you mentioned to resources that you have on your website for founders. Absolutely. So let's start with the letter. So everything that we discuss in Wall of Tools and, and contact information is all at midstage.org slash thrive. And so that's a kind of like a landing page with a lot of resources there. You can contact us from there. You can download tools and uh, whatever helps you in your startup journey. Uh, we're also just embarking on a number of uh, lectures in co-working places and universities around the country. So if you are in one of the startup metropolises, then hopefully we'll be able to meet in person one, one of these days. U.S. only? Primarily U.S. only at this stage. But yes, I'm looking forward to also maybe expanding it back into Europe at least in the course of 2004. But so far, it's uh, going to be the big startup cities in the US to start with. So yeah, make sure there's a link of that beacon calendar on the Thrive page as well. And finally, I would say as a startup founder, it's extremely important to understand what advice applies to what phase. So do not just take anything I said or anything anyone else says as this is the most important thing that applies to your startup first make sure that you're actually in the right phase to apply these things because i don't want to be the one that has led you to premature scaling or any of the other faulty patterns fantastic advice yeah it's always context dependent absolutely right? yes fantastic roland i really enjoyed this thank you so much and i hope to stay in touch and continue learning from you absolutely and i'm learning a lot from you as well moshe and it's been an honor to be on this amazing podcast thank you so much that's a wrap Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take 60 seconds to drop a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others like you discover the pod. If you've got any feedback or just want to say hi, you can always email me at hello at pmfpod.com or on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you want to learn more about what growth can do for your startup, check out growth.co. That's grwth.co. As always, wishing you rocket ship success on your startup journey.